you're in an argument with somebody and you do the typical thing. You start telling them how terrible they are for believing what they believe. What do you do when the person just looks at you deadpan and says, yeah, so? That's kind of what we're going to talk about in this episode, only on a global level. So stick around. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And Cameron, today I want to talk to you about what happens when somebody really doesn't care what you think. And we're going to start on a global scale here, and then maybe we'll work it down to the personal level. But I'm referring specifically to China kind of reiterating that has no desire to follow along with the rest of the Western's ideals of going net zero by any given point in the future as far as its energy usage goes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Chinese leadership has come out and said, yep, we'll, we'll transition to renewable energy whenever it makes sense and can actually replace fossil fuel-based things, but we're going to use our coal plants until that point, so deal with it. Um, and everybody, there's kind of this gasp of like, oh, I can't believe they're not going along with this, which all along they said, we're not, we're not going to go along with this. So, um, yeah, so it's always funny when people are surprised that somebody does exactly what they say they're going to do. Um, I get a kick out of that, but it's, it's part of a broader thing where it seems to me that living in a digital age, we sort of form this perspective of what it means to be a global community. And then we assume that other cultures are actually other cultures, that they have different ways of doing things and seeing the world. And then we kind of get surprised or don't know how to process. So what happens when you run into somebody who's like, yeah, I'm racist. Right. Or you, you know, or, or just something like that of like, we're not playing with your, your same climate ideas or the Taliban says, um, we're not going to educate women and, and there's gasp. I can't, no, they, that's how they've always done it. And that's what they said they were going to do, you know? So it's kind of this, this tension that I see of like our, and I don't actually think it's false surprise. It's just, an, mm -hmm. it's somehow we've we're un, we've uneducated ourselves on the, the distinction between different cultures and way of doing things that we then end up getting surprised. You also see this, I think for people with like Christian perspectives of marriage of like, oh, I can't believe mm -hmm. Christians yeah. have this view of sexual ethics. I'm pretty sure it's been like a couple millennia now that that shouldn't surprise anybody. So I, uh, is this just something that I see or like, where, where is this coming from? Um, what drives us to our ignorance that, people who believe different things from us actually have different beliefs than us. I don't remember who it was who coined the, the phrase global village. That might've been Marshall McLuhan actually, but that obviously describes a world of, you know, where all of us are connected and it's true, but that tends to mislead us on a pretty routine basis because on the one hand, this kind of incidence with China being unwilling to, cooperate with the Paris Agreement. On the one hand, yes, it, it is. it does seem somewhat shocking. Well, my goodness. I mean, what, why wouldn't you want to cooperate? And why wouldn't we want to conserve and be more, you know, environmentally conscious? But on the other hand, you think, well, why would they necessarily, why would this complete, this different nation, different culture, why would they think the way we do? But we do expect everybody to think the way we do. And by mm -hmm. think the way we do, I'm going to go ahead and say we usually have in mind a Western notion of how you think. The, I remember once a story that Tim Keller told back in his seminary days when he, was, he had become friends with an African-American student 
And this student at some point said to him, you know, the problem sometimes with a lot of white people is that you don't realize that you have a culture. Because the assumption is always, no, this is just the way, this is the way everybody does things. What you're doing right there, that's distinctive. That's unique. That's your culture. Well, we in the West sometimes have a similar problem, you know, if we're, you know, educated, you know, Western people who think, you know, capitalism and democracy is the way of, of all mankind or human humanity. We're making a similar blunder in some cases. We don't, I mean, this is, this is a highly distinctive way of thinking, and it's by no means common to everybody on the globe, nor does everybody want it. I think that's a notion that, a lot mm -hmm. of, that baffles a lot of people, because I remember even when we were talking a lot about radicalization, it's just several years ago, and we've mentioned this before, but when a lot of up, you know, upper middle class kids were being recruited by radical Islamist groups, we thought so many people were, how could this be? I mean, everything they've ever wanted is here. No, actually. <laughs> and that's, that's the interest because you can't, it's hard for us sometimes to imagine anybody wanting anything other than the culture that we have, the, the kind of, you know, the kind of politics that we have and all of that. But the truth is people do, and not everybody does think this way. Well, but, and we so talked that's, about that with Russia also. And we did, yes. Well, I mean, th so there's that. There's there's the the failure on the part of many of us who live in the West to to even imagine there are other ways of looking. Now, I know I realize this is this is going to be scandalous to some to some people to hear that because we pride ourselves on being well. No, I mean we're we're multicultural and we're we're very globally conscious and we're aware of other cultures. Yes, no, not really. I mean, we have. Do we like to? you know, are we eclectic in our taste? Do we, do we have international cuisine basically down in every town, every street? I mean, even if you live in where you do, Nathan, in, in West Virginia, I'm, I'm guessing I could still drive around a little bit and find a Thai restaurant or something like that. I mean, uh, maybe, is that a stretch? Yeah, maybe so someday. Nathan's the exception. <laughs> I'm the exception. But, yeah. but just, just pointing out, I mean, we have, so on the one, we, we tend to have a market mindset about, <laughs> international cultures and we tend to filter it all through our our western lens yes we have access to thai food and you can pull up you know punjab music on your on your spotify playlist but or, or you know even different kind of you know hindu patterns and artwork but how many of us actually know anything about the real stringent you know rigorous practice of devout Hinduism, for instance. Mm -hmm. I would well, say precious few of us. I read a book but, on that my brother-in-law loaned me about the history of violence in Buddhism. And, right. And they're and they're saying like, well, most like it's a very like Western academic liberal elite kind of thing to say, like, oh, Buddhism is a peaceful religion. And they're like, no, that's totally not the history that goes along with No, it's um, never been true if you look into yeah, the history of it. But but it's a classic example of us westernizing somebody else's culture into our own image. Um, mm -hmm. And then being surprised when history doesn't bear out what we expect it to be, even right. though we shouldn't have that expectation. And thinking of our perspective as very multicultural when we do that. So, well, yeah. Well, I just, okay. So, well, and, and maybe this fits into where we we're going or you can switch it around is that I, I don't think, so there's a sense in which we love diversity 
and we love being able to visit other restaurants and listen to music from different places and artwork and the concept of different languages and um like that's that's fun and that's part of what it means to be educated in our in our modern time right is to have this what did you say global village global community mm -hmm. um awareness on one hand you need the distinctiveness and you need the difference in order for that to be interesting and exciting um on the other hand what then happens when those differences cause real disruption in your own life so for example to go back to the china version is it basically means that if china is not playing along that all of these pretty pretty rigorous like climate actions that the u.s has adopted on percentage of vehicles that need to be um, electric vehicles by 2030 about how energy production needs to be capturing 90% of its carbon by 2040. Like a lot of this stuff that is going to massively influence the price and the cost of energy and transportation for all Americans. Like the next 10 years is going to be wild when we look at the price of energy and that sort of thing. All in the name of reducing global carbon emissions, CO2 emissions. None of that is going to make a difference if China doesn't play along. So if we're saving a phenomenal amount of CO2 and, but China is emitting even more, we're eating the bill for somebody else not playing by our rules that they never adopted. So that's the, that's where the frustration then starts to come is like, it's one thing for somebody like, yeah, I don't play by your set of rules. It's another thing then in which them not playing along massively changes your mm -hmm. culture in the way that you do things. So. That's where the rubber hits the road, I think. Well, that's the other piece here. So the globe, let's bring that global village language back in. We are all connected. And that means we're connected in a circle of mutual dependency now in ways that we were not in the past. And that's a that's one of those kind of features of the modern world that can be a tremendous advantage when everybody's cooperating and tremendous disadvantage when somebody doesn't mm -hmm. cooperate. So yeah. yeah. The but I want to I want to go back just so that's just true. So <laughs> yeah, there I it think is we're, the end. <laughs> there it is the end. I think we're in for for some for some very interesting moments there. And well you we'll, can even we'll, look at we'll, Europe we'll and energy dependence out. on Russia. I mean this isn't future tense. Absolutely. We've, we've seen this play out in the Russia Ukraine conflict already on Germany's reversion to all sorts of forms of energy production that they thought they were getting away from. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll, you'll be, we'll be saying, seeing this play out on a consistent basis. So, but back to this, this takes it down to a more intimate kind of local level, but let's talk a little bit about the odd powerlessness we experience when somebody just expresses apathy in the face of the violation mm. of cultural orthodoxy. Well, because, there's a sentence for you. <laughs> right, yeah. They're, they're, how, how could I make it more unclear? It's but, very precise. Well, but basically, I mean, look, you, you, use, the, you use an example that I think is, is pretty on the nose. When you encounter somebody who says, basically, okay, yeah, I'm racist, so what? Now, I've actually seen this play out before. I'm sure you have as well. I've seen this play out in public space. I've seen this play out on Twitter before, where you have somebody who is actually an avowed racist and, you know, engage in a, in a dialogue. And there, there is an odd kind of, there's an odd moment when you, the, the person who's kind of going after this, this individual realizes, 
well, you're a horrible person. You're, you know, all of these, all of these insults aren't going to land. They're not going to work mm-hmm. because the person just doesn't care. No, absolutely. No, I, I stand by everything you say. There was another incidence here, and this is not, I'm not an, at all equating racism and atheism here, by the way. So hear me carefully, but I'm talking about that odd kind of indifference when somebody completely owns the position they're being accused of. Mm-hmm. So this was a debate between Peter Singer. Some of you will know who Peter Singer is. He's an he's a bioethicist. Well, he's not a bioethicist. He's just an ethicist, isn't he? I believe at, so. Yeah. I, I think he's at Princeton, still at Princeton University. He's probably emeritus status now. Animal rights activist, and you know holds to some pretty radical what we as Christians would would consider pretty radical views on human value. I mean, Nathan can can clarify on some of that. I think in some instances, Peter, just to give you an illustration, Peter Singer would argue that a pig is more valuable than a fetus, right? Or a baby. He's made that. Yeah, so he would be famous for having some pretty broad statements about, he he advocated like the abortion after birth kind of status up until right. like two years old or something like that. So a very highly controversial figure and an outspoken naturalist. He was in a debate with Dinesh D'Souza. Some of you will know who he is at one point. And Dinesh's strategy in this debate was basically just to say, here are all the absolutely unsparing commitments that Peter Singer has. And his view of life is so pitiless and so hostile. And basically just, he, you know, gives this very Mm -hmm. bleak picture of naturalism to which Peter Singer's response was essentially, yes. And that is indeed (laughs) what I believe. And then, at that point, Dinesh D'Souza, who who is you know whatever you think of him, he he's a he's a very capable debater. He was never able to really recover from that, and it was it's just it's one of those moments where he he had clearly the unvoiced assumption there that he was was that he was kind of banking on Peter Singer to hold to the same some some kind of value or some kind of sacred tradition that that they had in common. When of course. He did not. And so when you encounter somebody who who just, well, no, I completely reject your system of evaluation to begin with. I don't care about it. Doesn't I don't recognize it as sacred. You are pretty much telling them, well, you're a terrible person for this. You I mean, this is this is just wretched and all that. I mean, you you says will who? get absolute yes, yeah, says who? I mean, you get absolutely nowhere. That's where you need to be begin to to realize that most of our debate strategies here in the West come down to public debate strategies come down to personal attacks these days, mm-hmm. and usually there are personal attacks along the lines of their their character attacks. You're a bad person because you do this and do. But if you, this may be one of those instances where if you really want to get anywhere at all, you're going to have to actually make some constructive arguments, <laughs> well, so and actually this- talk about what you really think. All right, so let me process this one with me. Is this not also the sense, though, that, okay, so we talk about the global village, the global community, and we're like, eh, not so much. But also, you can only get, so there, there's a degree of individualism that's at play here also, where I can mm. function independent of you, so it doesn't really matter if I tick you off or don't believe the same thing you do. That you you couldn't have done that um, in the past. So I'll give you a hyper extreme example. So I know some people who, um, 
they lived in a very cold place in the world and they had a uh, marital disagreement and it was like 40 below zero and he was running around outside the cabin and she was yelling out the window at him and they were very far away from anybody else. And he said, I had this thought, we can either reconcile our differences or I die. Like those are the two options. <laughs> so like both of us need to be in the warm space in order to survive, you know, and, and maybe that's kind of a, uh, an exaggerated version of that story. But the point being there is like, there wasn't another option. Like you had to reconcile or they're going to be mm -hmm. catastrophic problems. We live in a time which the global community allows the individual to say, I'll just move my community someplace else. Or if I irritate you and you don't like me, I can just resource my needs that you used to supply to me someplace else. So there's a sense in which there's a, a hyper individualism that having a global connection allows us to have. So um, China doesn't want to buy, uh, corn from the U S anymore. They can just get it from Brazil. So there's, there's a sense in which you can kind of really move the, the, the things that used to bind us together in the sense that we needed some form of even basic altruism in order to lubricate the necessary bonds of society aren't there anymore. So you can live next door to somebody now and never talk to them, which in the past they might've been an resource that was necessary for your survival. So that's a little bit of an interesting thing here too, is where we feel more free to tick off more people because we don't feel like we're actually dependent on them or have any obligation toward them that maybe we once in a more localized human culture felt that sense of connection and dependency. That's true. On a national level, we, that dependency is more pronounced, but when we're in our, yeah, so I'm also thinking of the European Union and some of the tensions there and the whole Brexit phenomenon mm -hmm. in the UK. And so you have, because what, what you've, you've got there are tensions between the notion of, no, hey, we are a global village here. We, can, we need to pool our resources. We need to work together to be one entity. And then there are individual nations who say, no, we are. We want to retain our individuality. We want to be who we are and hold on to our culture. We're in danger of losing what makes us who we are. We're in danger of losing our distinctives. But then on the other hand, there's there are economic considerations where if, if you're cut off from the European Union, as the UK has, has been learning, that comes with a whole set of disadvantages. So part of what we were talking about earlier is on a global level, that circle i mean that that kind of dependency is is more pronounced to the to the degree that you know china wants to go off and do its own thing and buy corn from brazil all of us here are going to feel feel consequences <laughs> connected with that but on the other hand on the ground here on a local level when we're just dealing with individuals in our lives let's say you're you're dealing with a person who who fits this bill who just i mean nathan let's go back to the I mean, we'll be back in election season pretty soon. But do you you remember the whole basket of deplorables thing? Oh yeah, was was that the that was Hillary's line, right? Yes. So that was a near perfect. That's a near perfect example on a, a kind of a smaller scale of what we're talking about here. So Hillary Clinton makes this remark about people who you know Donald Trump's constituency essentially, and calls them the basket of deplorables. Obviously, mm -hmm. not a great thing. But what happened? Oh, they started People, making t-shirts. Right. They latched onto it as a badge of honor. And 
you know, made the T-shirts and, yeah, you know, happy to be part of the basket of deplorables. I think this phenomenon happened in a big way with a lot of, actually, Trump supporters, to be honest with you, because there were so many, so many of the strategies employed against people who wanted to vote for Donald Trump had to do with, well, I mean, basically they ran, ran along the lines of, you're just a terrible person. And if you even have to argue with me, that just shows you what a terrible person you are. If you can't see the the total, you know, the the moral stupidity of your position, well, obviously, that's first of all, it's not a very effective, persuasive strategy. Let's just be honest about that. And you know, n- neither Nathan nor I are, are huge Donald Trump fans, but let's just be honest about that. But this is one of those examples where you could gain more traction with a person sometimes if you actually have the conversation with them and and maybe think about talking, giving an actual substantive argument of some kind and actually talk about issues rather than just going after their, you know, just character assassination. But that was one of those instances where finally, I think a lot of people there just said, okay, fine. Yep. I'm in that basket of deplorables. I'm just a terrible person. Fine. And then there's this odd kind of immunity that comes along with that because, well, you just are just absolutely morally reprehensible. Look at you. You're just, yep, yep, I'm all those things. Yep, sure. I don't care. And then, I mean, you you reach this kind of untouchable status and it's through this sort of apathy that you communicate to your opponent. So that's, yeah, that's one of those. And I think you're going to see, you'll see a little bit more of that these days because as you do you deal with the the kind of typical real shrill antics in our public discourse more and more people i think are going to are kind of just going to that okay yep absolutely that's me and then it yeah, just shuts so, down the debate yeah so the I, I think the yeah i thought the ethos of this podcast is partially trying to understand somebody else well yes and and even if you disagree with somebody understand why they hold the position that they do. And so I think the the Hillary statement, like, okay, so I live in West Virginia. Hillary lost West Virginia way before the election even started because she made some statements about guns and coal that there's like right, yeah. decades of history of those being some flashpoint issues for some pretty wild, like go back and study the Matewan massacre and some of like the history of the coal industry's interaction in West Virginia. And, you know, there's some wild embedded stories of like what that means. And so sometimes people step on a, on a a landmine, not recognizing what was buried underneath the statement that they made, or maybe they did. Um, So, so that's the challenge of like, does Russia think it has good reasons for invading Ukraine? Sure. Does China, I mean, every, so the thing is not to say that we can't disagree, but I think we want to be really, really cautious that we're assuming that the people who disagree with us don't have good reasons for that disagreement. I think that's just a, a fair starting point. Um, and it's intellectually lazy to jump straight to the ad hominem when there's probably a reason for the way things are the way, way they are. But why do we jump straight to the ad hominem? That's, that's something that's a tick that's been around for a long time. And it can't, it's, it's not just that we're, you know, sometimes that it is just intellectual laziness. That's it's easier to do that. You don't want to actually engage in a substantive debate. But I think buried there is also the assumption. Once again, we're going back to this that we said. At, I mean, this is what we said at the beginning of the podcast. 
we do tend to assume a kind of common Western template in a lot of how we think about the world and especially as we think about global terms. There's there's a bit of a tension in this episode between the global perspective we're talking about when we mention nations like China and then the, the local perspective when we talk about dealing with somebody who's who has deep with whom we have deep differences. But I think from a global standpoint, we especially here in North America have a lot of challenges there because we tend to we do we assume that sort of common Western template still after all these years, after all the multiculturalism, after all the deconstructionism, it's still it's still there. And we have a hard time thinking or recognizing that there are indeed totally other perspectives out there that people people want different things people see the world in different terms not every nation wants a democracy for instance we can mention that i mean this is true of the middle east by the way so we we have to we've got to work to i mean it's it takes work to climb out of one's perspective and it takes intention we have to think it through i think it takes i mean as a christian i would say this is a prayerful maneuver as well but then Part of the, I think the challenge is, is also that we in here in North America, it's such a melting pot now. We're, we're increasingly such an international community here that we're having to, we're having to learn to work through these differences. And we're trying to, I think younger people in particular want to move in a more constructive direction. And I think there's a growing recognition that just the quick attacks, you know, the, the sort of rhetorical flourish, flourishes of besting your opponent in public and just by being the loudest and the angriest, that those won't work anymore and that the, that's something that should be, that we should outgrow. I'm hoping, at least. <laughs> yeah, there's a weariness. Yeah, so you were saying, you know, we're not fans of, um, I don't have any political person that I'm like, man, I'm a fan of that person. Like I, I, and part of that is me not putting all of my eggs into the basket of the politicians being the ones that cast the vision for where it is we're supposed to be going. So I, I think I'm an equal opportunity um, cynic sometimes on a lot of the political shenanigans that I see going on in the world around me. So I want to put that out there. Um, we're not campaigning or advocating for anybody, but we also want to make sure that we're not falling into as Christians the sense in which that the political narrative becomes the predominant way in which we see and make these decisions. And I think that ad hominem side of things, Cameron, does come from a sense in which we basically see the story of the future is about winning. Like we have a very game theory mm. assumption. So, so when I'm thinking about that Western narrative, like however you described it, kind of the Western way of thinking about the world, I'm I'm trying to decide if this is the right way to say it or if this is what I actually think. That it is so deeply embedded in a winning-losing narrative, um, which in terms of real threats and real conflict, there's a sense in which that is true. I'm just trying to think what else gets smuggled in then, um, particularly around how we justify the actions that we take, what the real motivations for doing things are. Um, and you can say, well, you know, you're young and cynical. On the other hand, history has borne out the fact that shenanigans happen on the on the political mm -hmm. level. Um, 
in a way that should make us all cautious uh, to some degree about where we want to put our hope in in the future. Yeah, I think we're trying to move maybe some people are trying to move maybe away from the whole let's all just the winning mindset maybe into the more this is a word that's loaded <laughs> politically but <laughs> cooperation mindset in the sense in the sense of or how about collaboration maybe that's a better word cooperation has has some baggage with it if we're talking about oh yeah okay well let's let's quickly preempt a couple things here so there's a sense in which i think that in a on us if we start in the the microcosm at the small scale that ideally people that you want to do business with for a long time you make transactions that are good for both of you that it isn't a zero-sum game that's that's the best kind of cooperation is when you're both benefiting by working together so it's mutually beneficial it's not saying I'm getting ahead at the expense of X, Y, Z. But we do seem to function as if the zero sum is the default position on some of this. So that's worth keeping in the back of your mind if you have an aversion to the idea of cooperation of saying, actually, our economy functions pretty well when multiple people are benefiting simultaneously and isn't sustainable when it's extractive and only one party is quote right. winning in the distribution mm-hmm. of resources. So that's, yeah. And we're seeing more and more. If, well, if we want to be responsible and if we, you know, with, with the economy, with our environment, and if we want to recognize the mutual dependency that we have and, and, and again, steward that in a responsible manner, then I think we need to move toward more of a collaborative mindset where how do we work well together? And again, that's not to say that we're not going to face tremendous. I mean, most of our major global challenges lie in that direction, of course, right? We, th- we think about Russia, you think about the Middle East, and yes, we think about China. I mean, those are some of the most, North Korea. I mean, these are, these are huge, daunting obstacles. Nevertheless, I think that's, I mean, we have, again, here's where you run the risk of sounding a little hippie-ish, right? But I mean, you have one world. <laughs> it, it's not infinite. We don't have infinite resources. And we are starting to see increasing consequences of our overconsumption and some of our, you know, deleterious effects on the environment. So if we want to be responsible, we're going to have to move toward a collaborative mindset. And yeah, I think... Yeah, but see, yeah. this is where this gets difficult because I think you could we could easily say, okay, people have the right to say whatever they want and believe whatever they want, but we also have the right not to do business with them and not to include them in our communities of influence. Our you know, our biggest problem with China right now is we can't really irritate them too much, or where are we going to get all of our pencil erasers from? Um, yeah. I mean, we couldn't even make our own face mask during the pandemic without China's help. How, how, so, much do, how much do we owe China? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so there's a sense in which we, in, in the in the pursuit of, a, of economic efficiency, we have put ourselves in some interesting moral situations in which you're financially dependent on ideas that you don't like. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is a, a case to be made there, I think, for... Um, Re, yeah, re, recalculating and recalibrating. Um, is it all about the dollars and is it all about economic efficiency? Or, and I think by and large, you would say, yeah, people are willing or are, are happy by the lowest price is the main motivating factor. But 
Um, you just have to recognize then that when you're doing that at a global level, that means you will be financially supporting ideas that you don't believe in. Yes. And that's just the, the, that's the bottom line. You and the Saudi Arabians are very tight. Um, right now on your, you know, when you drive your car. So it's, a. Uh, I don't, I don't know what to make of it other than just say it's different and it's real. Yeah. I think what we've done mainly in this episode is outline the tensions of <laughs> inherent in that phrase, global village. And I think we've tried to look at part of what's true about it and part of what, re what remains stubbornly outside that mindset. I mean, yeah, but I have a sense in which I, so, but here's the thing. So I hardcore believe in the global village. I just call it the church. So right. I do feel like I have a global network of a like-minded culture that's diverse in all the appropriate categories and unified in all mm -hmm. the appropriate categories. And it's great fun to drop in another country and find people that are of your culture. I mean, who do mm -hmm. things the way you do that you've never met. And maybe they eat different foods and speak different languages, but you worship the same God and that's, that's the fun of it. So I'm all about it. I think the vision that we get at the end of revelation of what God has intended for unity and diversity is real and will happen. Um, it's great. Huzzah. Celebrate it, rejoice in it, but don't, but don't, don't form an idea of it. That's in the wrong categories. And so if it's primarily political and economic for you, you're setting yourselves up for a recipe for disillusionment and disaster um, you're going to need something bigger to to unite and to bond people across different cultures together. And that's why I'm a big fan of the church. As am I. And thanks for sticking with us for this somewhat haphazard episode of Thinking Out Loud. But in case you missed it in all of that, you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.